a or proving that you have a business model that has a predictable return on investment. That is kind of the the short Polar Stars version, and that's easy to say and damn hard to, to get to, right? So, I think the principle of a scale up is understanding if you give me hundred million dollars, I'll give you this back. Welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's show. Today on the show, I've got Ola Sars. Ola, thanks for doing this. Thank you, Jess, for having me. So I'm excited to hear about soundtrack, soundtrack your brand, your other experiences, co-founder at Beats. You've done a lot of interesting things. Can you give people just like the, the quick overview on your career? And I've and I got some specific questions for you. Sure, I'll do this Swedish version. <laughs> 12 years of ups and downs in, um, in what's called the digital music market. That's, that's kind of the relevant stuff. Before that, I did consulting and uh, startups in, in kind of the consulting space, things that made me become more and more miserable with myself and uh, private equity and stuff like that. And then 12 years ago, I was fortunate enough to actually uh, take, take a leap of faith and work with one of my biggest passions, music. And s- since then, I've been failing and succeeding in that space and it's my fourth startup and and obviously a pretty interesting macro where uh, audio is going digital and audio is becoming uh, there's very new interesting uh, phenomena that's in our ears either through headphones or through speakers and and wherever we are so currently um, operating my fourth startup soundtrack your brand which is basically audio for business startup yeah, so I want to hear about the other experiences, but let's start there. Who's your ideal customer? So my ideal customer is maybe the restaurant entrepreneur in, in let's just say, New York, Brooklyn, or in Austin, or in Miami, or in, you know, some small city in upper New York City, New York State, or doesn't really matter, but there's entrepreneurs everywhere that are building small, medium-sized, and big businesses that actually deliver a customer experience. And it could be a restaurant, it could be a retailer, it could be a juice bar, it could be a hotel, it could be a fitness studio, and it could be a yoga studio, anywhere kind of where you're walking in and, and experiencing a brand or experiencing a venue. I'm helping that entrepreneur to augment and improve that customer experience with audio. The easiest case is, under, is background music. So think about it. Wherever you go uh, in kind of the public domain, there's always some music playing in the background. And that music can be either terrible or it can be somewhere in the middle or amazing. And I want those entrepreneurs to be able to create an amazing experience that helps them build their brand and, you know, sell more coffee if that's what you're doing. Yeah. Can you talk about what the hurdles were to that before you did this? Sure. <laughs> yeah, I can talk about the hurdles <laughs> for a long while. First of all, music uh, and the music industry as such is not the most logical industry as such. So being able to source 50 million tracks 
in 75 markets right now through a licensing uh, regime that incorporates more than 15,000 direct deals with music labels and publishers worldwide is not trivial to get in place. So that took me three and a half years and a couple of hundred sleepless nights. But at the end of the day, we were able to establish kind of the business model for music streaming in the B2B space. So sourcing the commodity or the art, if you may, music isn't easy. It should be because I'm actually selling their product. So the logic would be that they would love me. They would give me the license in, you know, a heartbeat. But that's not the case. It took me three and a half years to actually create what Spotify has created for the consumer markets. I've created for the for the business market. And then on top of that, you need to build the technology to to deliver that that audio to the business market, which is completely different than delivering a service to the consumer market in your headphones. You need to think about what does it sound like in a public domain, explicit lyrics. I want to manage the 10 restaurants from one instance and kind of make it sound different on a Monday versus a Friday. And restaurant A sounds a little bit different than restaurant B. Opening hours in Stockholm are different than opening hours in Chicago and so forth. So the technology stack on top of the actual sourcing of, of the music is super complex and another. 30 to $50 million to build. And then obviously all the kind of hoops and hurdles of building an organization that works culture, building a really tight, small organization, which is my thing. I, I like scale. I don't like building big organizations with lots of humans. I'm kind of a small team person and scalability team of person. So I usually talk about building the diamond of the music industry. And that's kind of the symbol that I have when building when building soundtrack. Yeah. So let's say I've got locations, you know, so our, our real estate fund, right? You know, one of the things I'm interested in is we're, we're trying to create like more of an experience of go put tiny homes or stuff that is way cheaper than building a hotel in like really great locations and like be able to offer it cheaper, but offer like way better experiences than a hotel for the dollar kind of thing. You know, it comes with free yoga, sunrise yoga and surfing lessons and jungle tours and all of that's included instead of just a room, you know, kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And so for us, we are kind of, you know, probably pursuing more of like the adventurer and as, as the, the, the guest for these locations. Right. And we're like, oh yeah, I want awesome music. I don't want music, you know, mm -hmm. what, what does that look like when I'm coming to you saying, Hey, how do I sign up for your service? What do I pay? How does that work? Well, I mean, everything is about B2B SaaS for us. It's like you can go online and you buy it yourself. So let's say you're building 10 of your wonderful kind of properties or solutions or, or services, I would call them, right? Then you, you go to soundtrackyourbrand.com and you sign up like you would be signing up for Spotify. But then when you sign up, you start giving me information about, okay, I got one I got one uh, location in, let's just say, in Mexico somewhere on the beach. I got one in Utah for skiers. I got right. one uh, Long Island for for the fancy New York people that want to, you know, go crazy and live somewhere cheap. <laughs> and I got one in, you know. So all of a sudden, so you start thinking about these locations. You start thinking about your brand in general, what you want to deliver. But then you understand that every specific location has a different soundtrack, right? But you still want to be on brand. 
And then you start thinking about, okay, every, so you start setting up your locations. Let's say you set up your, your 10, what do you call them? Hotels or do you call them? Yeah. I don't know. We got to come up with a name, but sure. Yeah. yeah okay. We'll, let's just we'll, call them our tiny home, our tiny house villages. Let's just call them, you know, remote experiences. Yeah. And, and so your, your experiences hubs have, have different soundtracks and, but they want to be freaking awesome. Right. That it, you don't want to be playing music. You want to be playing the coolest stuff in Mexico with with that type of vibe. If you're in the surf, you want to be playing the coolest kind of alternative rock in Utah for the snowboarders and and stuff like that. And you want to be you want to really start engaging with the brand experience. And in order to do that, you need to set up a sophisticated system. Like you need to deliver. You need to kind of set up a sophisticated content management system. And I help you do that by setting up the structure, controlling the whole soundtrack of your brand all over the world in real time with, with different sound experiences in different parts of the world at different times. And we, we empower that through a unique AI that we built or a music intelligence platform that kind of where you can, where you can feed us the type of experience that you want to deliver. Like, for example, Latin, high energy, progressive, but still elegant salsa house and jazz and then we we recommend a soundtrack based on that and that soundtrack lives forever in that specific location so it's about saving time money and anxiety for the entrepreneur so they can go sell whatever they're selling and can we like literally hook up speakers to an ipad or run it from there or something yeah. or what's the yeah. we support all platforms like like people use so it's it's a, it's a software it's like it's, it's nothing like when you're buying, you know, when you're using Square to to kind of power your payments, or you're using Square pay, Squarespace to build your website, it's the same thing, but for for audio. Yeah. What do you feel like? What do you feel like you've learned this time around? You know, number number four here. What what have been mm-hmm. new lessons? Well, every time you start a company, it's exciting, and and if you fail or if you succeed, I've done both multiple times. It's a huge learning experience. So this last one, I would almost there call myself a seasoned entrepreneur, and with with some with some key learnings coming into it. And you think you kind of figured it out, right? But here we are again. <laughs> the soundtrack has been by no means easier than any of the other startups and has been on the brink of catastrophe multiple times. And I'm actually just quoting Daniel Eck, who's a good friend who runs Spotify and the founder. He's like, he certainly can relate to Spotify being like a millimeter from crashing at least five <laughs> times, at least five times through, through the buildup. And I think any entrepreneur successful or unsuccessful can relate to that. I mean, it's, it's never easy. It, it, there's nothing easy about building companies and surviving. And specifically if you're front loaded and you're technology heavy, you need to invest, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars in order to get to, you know, a, a reasonable product. So I think answering your question, what have I learned this time around specifically? I think just the simplification of the fact that companies like this, if you're somewhat seasoned, run through two specific phases. One is, product market fit and the other one is go to market fit and product market fit is what I call kind of the startup stage is you're, you're funding a product and a thesis around product logic and a market that will accept your product. And you need to get to the point where you're proving that you've been able to deliver this product 
and that people are actually paying for your product and you're driving demand for that product. And then you kind of check the box of, of product market fit. That's as that's super hard, right? And everyone who's done it is like, if you get there, you think you're done. You're like, yeah, we did. <laughs> we got to product market fit, but that's just when it starts. Then you kind of, you kind of take the startup stage and then you got to go to scale up and scale up, meaning you now have to go to, you know, move towards go-to market fit, like getting your whole commercial model working, everything with, you know, monetization model, customer acquisition model, LTV CAC ratios over time, marketing mix, blah, 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 everything build out of org. And I think just understanding these two specific phases has been the key learning from my experience with Soundtrack was it really has been very much trying to get the product market fit. And now we're in the middle of scale up and getting to go to market fit. And the challenges are completely different. Yeah. Interesting. By the way, you've got an interesting title on your LinkedIn profile here. I'm going to ask you about some of these. What's a uh, billboard, (laughs) billboard power player 2021. What's that? What is it? It is, it's basically billboard picks out the, the, can I say it, the most important people in the music industry yeah, every yeah. year. I think that's the only way to say it. That's how they say it. And it's the people who are changing the industry and, and contributing to the growth of the global music industry. And this year, I was one of the few of the international non-American, because they do divide in between the U.S. and the rest of the world, <laughs> obviously. I don't know which one's most important, but I'm, I'm assuming it is the U.S. one. So I made it to the international power playlist at yeah, very cool. Okay, Spotify business co-founder and CEO. Tell us about that. It was the first effort that we started in the B2B. I came from the B2C streaming space at Beats Music, who became Apple Music and was one of the co-founders over there. Then then I kind of came up with the idea of digitizing background music. And so the first, which is B2B. So I went back to Sweden and started up that effort together with Spotify. And we, we, we started up Spotify business, which was the first effort for me to go to move music streaming into B2B. And it was kind of a co-venture with Spotify. And then we uh, pivoted and moved away from home and, and went completely independent from that venture and that soundtrack. And did you know them already or how did that come about? Uh, yeah, for sure. I mean, Stockholm is super small. It's everyone knows each other in Stockholm, more or less, who kind of are in the tech space. And if you're in the music tech space, which I've been for a long while, then you know people and Martin and Dan are the founders and they're from here and we helped out. We helped each other a little bit in the beginning when I was doing another startup. So everyone knows each other. Yeah. When you think about the success they've had that others haven't, what do you attribute to? What do you think that they've done differently that not everybody's done? Focus. Laser focus, ruthless focus, non, non, what's the word? No compromise focus. It's just been like when you're when you're being successful like they have been with this startup and specifically Daniel, you are just bombarded with opportunities to distract you. Let's do a deal with Google. Let's do a deal with XYZ. Let's combine. And they've been able to stay specifically Daniel who runs the company. No, we're only doing one thing, audio for consumers, and we're going to win. So every hour you spend, if you're not spending on, on this core business, then you're doing something wrong. Awesome. Let's go to Beats Music. You know, Beats by Dre. So COO and co-founder at Beats Music. Tell us that story. There's a long one and there's a short one. Let's do the short one. It was crazy. 
absolutely crazy. I came from two previous startups in the music space where I was building basically a human-driven music recommendation service for music. So the, I'll, I'll just connect to the previous companies because that connects to Beats. So it, the idea was to extract all the music intelligence from all the music tastemakers of the world. And we did that in my previous companies and build this music recommendation engine and service in a market where you would be able to reach all the music in the world anywhere, anytime. So it would be obviously interesting to, to be able to be the recommendation engine for that market. So I, I'd spent a couple of years doing that, but I, but I always was a strong believer that humans were better than machines when it came to actually filtering art and music in specific. So I built one company called Let's Mix, which was basically an upload and share platform. I think about YouTube early days, but only with music mixes. And I connected to all the DJs of the world and I started extracting the aggregated music intelligence from them in order to build this, this music mind. And, uh, but I also thought that the editorial aspect of it was, uh, was super interesting. And, and, and Jimmy and Dre were obviously building headphones and they were building uh, a power brand in the U.S. at the time. They, they realized that the music industry was changing and their publishing business wasn't going to be that great back then. So they wanted to build a competitor to Spotify. And we had, they had tried to buy a previous company from me, which was a hardware company. And now the second time around, we actually joined forces and my company, Let's Mix, became... Beats Music. I registered the brand Beats Music actually, and I told them because the, the their working name was Daisy, which was one of Luke, the CEO of Beats it's Dog's name, and they didn't have a name for it. And they were thinking about let's just call, you know let's call it Musicify or something. They were all let's just call it Beats Music. That's your brand. And they said okay, the Swede wins. And I registered Beats Music Sweden AB, which is our incorporation kind of uh, model. And uh, we built the stealth team out of Stockholm, started recruiting from the Stockholm music scene and my previous team. And we started building the competitor to Spotify, but it was based on human curation. And at that time, Spotify was completely geeking out on, on kind of machine learning and AI and, and basically thinking about building a robot for music recommendation. And, and I think the truth was somewhere in between. And I think both companies came to that kind of end uh, conclusion and product. So Apple Music and Spotify today are both a com combination of of uh, machine learning and and human curation, right? Yeah. And by the way, and then Beats Music, we we were on that. I worked night and day for a long while, and it was it was absolutely crazy until the point where I think I thought I was going to die. It was like <laughs> I didn't I didn't move I didn't move to the U.S. either, so I was flying back and forth to L.A. from Stockholm every second weekend having a family at that time. And uh, yeah, it was just a crazy time. Um, and then how much later was it that, that the Apple deal happened? I checked out pretty close to the deal, <laughs> but not close enough. I, they, for the record, they did good with me and I, they took care of me and like, it is what it is. I just didn't have it in me to, to run another year at that point on a personal level. And that was the year when they actually concluded the deal. So. Yeah, that's great though. Well, what were those guys like to work with? Extremely inspiring, but impossible to work with when it comes to building technology because they had no idea what it required, but yeah. they they learned quickly and they were humble to the fact that they knew some things and other people knew other things. And 
at the end of the day, everyone was able to pull it off and we launched. You know, I'm sure just being a public figure, what's what's Dre like as as a business person or what do you feel like some of his strengths are? I, I was super impressed. Uh, I mean, I didn't deal with him every day. He's, he's like the mega rock star. I mean, board yeah, meetings yeah. and stuff like that. And like, I, I tend to have an extreme respect for people who don't talk much, but when they say something, it counts. That pretty much explains it. Interesting. Well, what was the hardware startup? It was called Pacemaker and it wasn't, it wasn't something that you would implant to help the blood flow in your body. <laughs> it was actually, it was actually the world's first pocket-sized DJ system. <laughs> okay. Figure that out. Figure that out. <laughs> wow. it, no. So, so, how do I explain that? Initially? So, the thesis was when I when I moved into music out of out of passion and changed my career. It wasn't just a romantic. I need to work with music, or I'm gonna. It was. Okay, Mr. Sars, there's something going on in the music industry right now because it, it was digitizing right in front of me, and I was living with a lot of people who were involved in the music industry, close friends, and I was just the the observation was that a production was going digital, b distribution was going digital, c consumption was going digital, and it was all happening at the same time, and the industry was not you know, being responsive. Hence, it collapsed by, you know, file sharing. And, and, and they lost 60% of, of, of the total value of the market just through piracy. That's opportunity for me. And I thought that was great timing to, to enter the market with a thesis that, okay, having seen the digitization, observing kind of what that could be today, tomorrow, and, 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 into the future obviously it's going to lead to that all the music in the world is going to be accessible anywhere anytime for anyone how do you enter into that market thesis probably by by kind of building towards becoming the music recommendation or filtering in a market of abundance and being able to be the, the the empowering curation and empowering distribution the right music to the right consumer at the right time how do i do that well then the idea was okay. Let's let's build something. And I was kind of into the DJ market and kind of electronic music at that time. I'm all over the place when it comes to kind of preference, but at that time I was into kind of the dark basements of Europe. And but what you were seeing was that okay, there's this massive movement of DJs growing around the world. This DJ culture exploding, and these these kids and older people as well as myself actually have this amazing ability to pick what song comes next to understand what music goes well with what music. And we started talking about music recipes. And based on that, we just figured out if we could build something that connects to the aggregated intelligence of all these people, we would, we would build a very, very interesting knowledge base of what music belongs with what music in what context, right? So a big recipe bank, if you may, and we would collect that from all the chefs of the world, the chefs of music or the selectors or the DJs. And we would turn that into a, a listening experience or a music recommendation engine. And what vehicles did we have to do that, to extract that knowledge or connect to that knowledge base or the tastemakers as we call them? Well, this was actually before the, the app store, believe it or not, which 
a lot of people can't relate to. <laughs> I'm assuming you're way younger than I am. So I don't know if you were around when, when there wasn't an app store. Yeah, I'm 41. So yeah, so you're younger than I am, not that much. younger. But, but, but then you do remember the days when there wasn't an app store. And, and so we didn't know how to kind of distribute the, the Trojan horse into the music curator community of the world. So we ended up building a hardware device that was basically a DJ device. Uh, that would connect to all the existing DJ platforms, but also provide the opportunity to be creative in music in itself. So it was like the size of a peanut butter jelly sandwich, but it did have all the technology of a full DJ setup. That's awesome. That was the pacemaker. Yeah. Very cool. And and then that startup, which crashed, we I learned not to build hardware. Well, I'm I'm interested. You know, as we look at you know some of our heroes like like Red Bull, who you know have figured out how to build a big enough media company profitably that they basically get paid to do advertising for their, for their brand. Right. When you think about success in the music business or success with celebrities in general, what do you feel like is some of the rookie mistakes that people make? Wow. I wouldn't claim that I'm an expert on kind of celebrity marketing or, or kind of using pop culture as an engine to build a brand, but in the music space, obviously it's easy to relate to, pop culture and brand building in terms of like connecting to the right people. Right. So I think I'd rather kind of take the very, very rough example of Jimmy, uh, Jimmy Iovine, and who I, I learned a lot from when working with him at Beats and, and kind of, and he, he like oversimplified the whole kind of celebrity position that he had with his previous recording career. I mean, he is the kind of the, the Mac in, in, in the music industry. Everyone looks up to him, which they should. And, and he could basically connect to anyone. So what he did was he basically took his Beats headphones and the, he hung them around the neck of Gwen Stefani times 200 and just did the media reach exercise of that. And we all know what happened with, with the Beats headphones and that story. And he said, like, look, it shouldn't, we should build the most premium. We should charge five times more than anyone else. That's how it works. That's how, that's how you build a brand. And it was as simple as that. And of course, there's like a billion things going on in his head just because he has this amazing intuition. But he always did understand mainstream America, which I obviously, as a foreigner in Sweden, have no idea how. It's like it's for me, it's, you know, he, he, he figured that out. And, and he, he, knew, he knew how it worked and he knew how to kind of play the game. I think it's one of the biggest success stories, right? But it, there was this basic mechanism, okay, and there's a story, by the way, where him and Dre were down in Santa Monica talking about what do we do? Like, you know, our publishing empire is like, it does, it's not looking great to be in kind of music rights industry right now, which, by the way, is great to be in right now. So they're back. But and, and then Dre had some idea about doing speakers and he said, fuck, uh, sorry, doing sneakers. And he said, fuck sneakers, we're doing speakers. And they they did Beats by Dre. I don't know if it's true, but that's that's what they said. And that, that's still the story that they're talking about. So, but there was, there was a thinking, obviously, that's an easy, tangible product to connect to mainstream America and kind of put in front of every journalist at every event where all his, where his network is basically at, right? So he had this marketing machine thought and he had this idea of building, you know, the power brand of, of pop culture of the U.S., which he knew all about. So he was way ahead of Spotify. And that's why Spotify was terrified of us when we came in, even though we were small and clunky and 
you know, scrappy, but we we have this amazing connectivity with the music industry facilitated by Jimmy and Dre and understanding like how to get everyone behind. Yeah, that's great. Didn't answer your question, but I, but I, but by no means am I an expert. But these guys really knew how to spin it, and very few examples have I seen of of successes like Beats. Yeah, no kidding. When you think about when you think about the music industry in general, what do you think people misunderstand about it from the outside? They usually think it's much simpler than than it looks. There's a lot of opportunistic efforts to go in and say like how hard can it be to build a music label or a music publisher or a music service but there's a reason why spotify is competing with apple google and amazon right now it's damn hard and it's way more complex and way more expensive than you would ever imagine to actually build like a a distribution service like like i'm building right now which is great for me because i know how to do it and i'm here now with the only b2b music streaming service in the world and it's taken me like you know, five years to get here and a lot of money. But just like in terms of in terms of technology and music tech and distribution, people tend to un- underestimate severely how hard it is. And then in general, you know, people's view on the music industry is that it's, you know, a la-la land type of place where people are, you know, just artists taking drugs and drinking and not doing like artists work really hard. And they work harder than most of us people. And they fly around the world and they go, they, they work with massive stress level of success. And, and they, you know, the, the artists that I've gotten to know that are successful, they work way harder than any investment banker that I ever met. So that just, just kind of explains it. And by the way, it's very unpredictable and the risk is way higher. So I have way more respect for them. Who are some of the artists that you respect that you've had interaction with? <laughs> well, most of the artists I know, I respect. Like the the successful ones, the the the, the not successful ones, the ones who are striving. But obviously, I wouldn't say I know a lot of artists like it. But I have gotten to know people because I'm in the industry, and I'm just kind of the the the, the Swedish guy who builds the techs that they don't you know <laughs> really care about. But at the end of the day, they've understood that okay, that's probably important. So I, I should probably learn a little bit about that as well. But but by no means I mean it's like talking to people like Trent Reznor, for example, who I had the ability and privilege to work with at Beats. It's just amazing person who who is just you know, an artist with attention to detail and so much intelligence, but at the same time, crazy, crazy, arty type of crazy guy, but just is able to balance the art towards business and make qualified decisions around it. That's that's a really interesting person. I mean, Dre is obviously extremely interesting as well and in his path of moving beyond music and and into into industry, right? and into business there's so many there's so many and and some of them who've stayed around for so long and been able to reinvigorate and kind of reinvent their brand over time like bands that are still around i mean that's also just a massive challenging thing if you're if you're an artist and brand and you've done you know two three good albums but look at those those artists who's actually done 10 12 15 and are still touring and they're getting close to my age i mean how freaking hard is that? It's like, it's the toughest job. And so I have the utmost respect for, for 
the artists that are successful and that have made it through. And, and there's a lot of good examples of them. And, and I think, and I think there's this skepticism to kind of when, when, when artists try to go into business and people are like, yeah, it's just this artist trying, but there's, there's pretty good examples of people being quite successful. I mean, look at the whole U S kind of industry and look at, look at JC and look at all those, those artists that actually Beyonce who are amazingly successful also outside and the investments they've done and so forth. Yeah. So, so there's there's a lot of interesting stuff in the music industry. It's 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 not the biggest industry and, and so forth, but everyone knows about it, everyone cares about it, and everyone can relate to it somehow. Yeah. Well, I, I want to switch gears and talk about the other side, on the tech side of the world. Uh, I know you've written about this and spoke about it before, but I, I'd love to hear more of your thoughts on the difference of, what, or just what you feel like some of the principles are of once you've got product market fit. And now it's time to scale up. What you feel like some of the most important principles for that are. So back to kind of what I've learned in your question of where I'm at right now. And if I'm trying to condense the learnings of this last effort. And what really interests me is now scale up, right? And, and scaling up and, and becoming a successful scale up. And defining a successful scale up, but there's probably some fancy definition somewhere. But if I, if I take a stab at it, it's, it's you know, building a or proving that you have a business model that has a predictable return on investment. That is kind of the, the short Ola SARS version of it. And that's easy to say and damn hard to, to get to, right? So I think the principle of a scale-up is understanding if you give me $100 million dollars, I'll give you this back within this time frame. So it's a return exercise. And then back to what is it then that I have to build in order to be like a successful scale? I have to build that machine with high with high predictability and a big enough market, a strong enough willingness to pay for the service, a strong enough differentiated position and competitive advantage to whatever alternatives there are in the market, the technology and the team to keep iterating product leadership and everything that comes with kind of building the company that can scale over time without breaking. And what really turns me on right now is building companies that are extremely small. So I'm, I'm kind of fixated by the, the small team theory and, and software as, as, as act, the actual scalability tool. And I think sometimes companies get carried away with, you know, I don't know, they bring in senior managers that weren't founders or they bring in people who are more like previous coming from big corps and they think like, okay, we should absolutely be growing this company. Like we should have an office in Stockholm. We should have an office in, you know, and this notion that there should be people everywhere. And I kind of, I really, I'm really, really interested in kind of, can we even be smaller? Could the revenue per M, uh, per FTE be $100 million? Imagine how cool that would be. So personally, it's about, you know, maximizing scalability and finding and building the, the machine and the thesis and breaking into market that allows you to do that. So I don't know if that answered your question, yeah. but that is really where I'm at right now. And I'm reading a lot about product-led growth, which is kind of one theory and and, and SaaS right now, but really digging into to that type of modeling. 
Well, there's parts of that that are really fascinating to me. You know, I come from the world of like, if you're doing retail investment sales, you need lots and lots of reps out there doing lots and lots of lunch meetings, right? Mm. And, you know, because of this podcast, I get to meet all these cool people who are like, they're just always expanding my mind of what's possible. And we've had a lot more AI people on the show recently. And like, it makes me think like, do we really need a big sales force? Or you look at these AI chatbots that are actually like universities are using them to teach people. And I'm thinking like, what if we didn't think about it as a sales pitch? What if we thought about it as an education process? If we can mm -hmm. teach our potential investors to see like Warren Buffett sees, I can trust that they'll see why we're doing what we're doing. Like that will make us attractive. We just help them understand why we're doing what we're doing. That, that would be enough of a sales pitch for us, you know? And so, you know, like I'm thinking run a media company to get, to get the listeners, the viewers, people to find out about it, you know, do something repeatedly so you can build up some trust. And then instead of having like some giant sales force, maybe we just need to like, educate more have like a small production studio where we're making like like high quality extremely informative videos we've got ai chatbots teaching people stuff where we take every question that anyone has ever asked anybody on our team we can consistently add faqs to the website so you you actually never need to talk to human because anything you could possibly ask someone's asked before and it's already on the website you know and like you know could we anyways what you said, there's some elements of it that are super fascinating to me of like, what could that look like in our world? Yeah. And, and, and I'm still, you know, fascinated by how many people don't think like that because it's not like I'm a genius talking about, you know, software enabled scalability. Right. And where we are right now, people probably don't want to be sold to, they want to buy and, and just look at search, just look at the search pattern. Like just as an example, and it's not a secret, like, like I run a fairly basic business. I sell business subscriptions for music, right? Anyone can figure out what that is. It's hard to build. So I can, I can talk about it with, with a sense of confidence that there's no big secrets here. It's just really hard to do, but like 80% of our intake, meaning like our, our sales is based on, you know, pull search like, okay, I just opened a restaurant and, and, you know, in, in Brooklyn, it's an Italian restaurant. What do I do? I, I go online, I search for music for Italian restaurants, right? Or I or and or I go it's like music for business, or I go search for opera, Pavarotti opera mixes for like there's and and I don't I don't want to get sold to. I know I know pretty much what I want, and I'm used to searching for anything that I, I'm, I'm. So it's a demand driven market, right? And the consumer or the buyer is empowered. And if we can improve that empowerment and, and simplify the process and improve the, the information gathering and decision process, but still on her terms, that's the sales process of today, in my opinion. And that goes for B2B as well. You know, I so related but different, I look at our thing of like, we're trying to pay quarterly checks at quite a bit higher rate than most cash flow investments. So I've got like a structural advantage of like when people find out about us, they're, they're pretty attractive because on an apples to apples, like we're just, we just pay more. Right. But mm. I need to show up where they're searching. I need them to find out about us because the investment world is like, 
you know, the never ending, the never ending list of one more version of investment. I mean, like, she's like, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like there's such a huge C when you think about, when you think about strategies to make sure you're found to, you know, whether that's SEO, whether that's other things, what are the, what are the most attractive strategies for you? Well, first of all, I have the privilege or I've been smart enough to build a service in a market where there is demand, right? So in some instances, when you're building a company, you need to create demand or create the category, right? And that's harder. And and I have utmost respect for people who do that or companies are able to do that. Like that's that's true innovation. For me, it was digitizing an existing market and meeting a, an existing demand with a better digital solution. So that's what I'm doing right now. So let's start with that. And then, so I have the, the, the privilege of addressing a market that's looking for music. So hence my strategy, if I can capture any type of search behavior, any type of kind of, okay, consideration progression, that's what I need to think about. Where does that happen is the first question. Does it happen offline, online? Where in what instances you need to start thinking about that. And for me, it's like, okay, I talk currently I target the SMB markets, like like the small and medium-sized businesses, because those are the ones who are buy, buying SaaS online quicker. Because the enterprise guys are just like they're still doing procurement for some reason. And and it's for me, it's usually, yeah, it's it, there's no rocket science, it's online, but 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 it's like a damn good execution team in terms of SEO and search in general, like, and like recovering every type of search pattern. It could be, it could be stuff that you never thought about, like where they come in and, and then dominating both organic and acquired search is for me core. And then thinking about, okay, from initial search to actual purchase and adoption, what does that look like? And that's different than any and in, in different services, right? So you have to figure out, Okay, what stages do they go through? And this is not rocket science. It's like the first marketing course you go to in school, right? And, and just following the the, the the buying process. But you need to do that. You, t- you tend to forget about these, like, the simplest things, right? But really understand what does the decision process look like in terms of the empowered buyer. Like, I run my two restaurants. I'm deciding what I want. And then help them. Like, really think about how do I save them time, anxiety, and money? And how do I help them educate themselves that's, in an incredible way? That's such way. a great list, by the way. I just got to interrupt. That's such a great list. Yeah. If all of us business owners were sitting around obsessing, how do I how do I save my how do I save my customers time, money, and frustration? Time, money, and time, money, and anxiety or frustration. Yeah, yeah anxiety. That's a. I mean, I know it sounds super simple, but no, I mean, awesome. no, I mean, I, I think the learning is always like you forget about. The simple stuff, like you tend to, like our generation tends to overcomplicate things, but you need to get back to kind of like the basic, I don't know, like Philip Kotler or something, read the first book and kind of, you know, you forgot about it, right? What was it? I don't know. I can't remember, like product, price, promotion, and whatnot, something, yeah, which is, you know, but it's just a digital, you need to empower the user or, or the, the person searching. And, and now the new thing is obviously education as you mentioned and kind of being the the source of education for a more qualified empowered decision instead of selling so can i in a credible way help her to actually feel that she's empowering herself with objective information 
and then picking my service, even though I'm actually the service provider. I think that's kind of the trick in these ages and just being honest about, Hey, yeah, I'm soundtrack. Yeah. I represent one service, but this is kind of, this is how I view like what you should be thinking about as a restaurant owner. And people tend to over sophisticate that as well and overcomplicate. Oh, there's this like theory about that. No, it's just like being honest. Hey, I put together a couple of, you know, good, you know, white papers here and stuff you could read go ahead and read it and if, and if you think it's good yeah i'm selling you a product come on over and buy it and <laughs> and i think and you found me and let me let let, let me give it to you for free so you so you can test drive it and if you like it keep it but i'm gonna charge you you know i have never thought about us test driving our stuff because what are we going to do with them like give them quarterly checks when they haven't invested right but just as you said that i thought why not? All of the other big services have like a pretend uh, stock account where you can just like, you can claim you bought Google and then you can track what it would have done. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Like, why don't I invent something like that? Why don't I have like, yeah, test this out, but you know, hypothetically invest X dollars today and we'll send you updates of the check you would have gotten from us had you put in. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's the product-led growth kind of theory. And there's no rocket science con. It's like it's it's basically the auto industry who made it, who 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 invented it. Like if you can get people test driving the car, you know, then they'll buy it. Or X percent will buy it. You know, I really love your emphasis on the honesty factor there. Like, I, I was taking some notes as you were talking. Like, education so they can feel qualified and empowered to make their own decision making, giving them objective information. Just be honest. Like, think about how much trust that is. Everybody's always trying to sell everybody everything. If you're just helpful and honest, like that's going to win people over more than slanting things, I feel like. At least and you'll win over the right people because you don't want to sell to the wrong customer and specifically not in our model when you got a free trial and you can like terminate at any time. Like you need to ha- help them make the right decision. And that's easy to say because I've picked a market where I like I have a massive competitive edge. I dare say like my, my, my relative product benefit is massively better than the competition right now. That might change, but that's, but if you're kind of selling semi-generic products or like harder to differentiate, then probably you're forced to be more forward-leaning sales, right? And it might, and it might not make a difference because you're still kind of happy with what you're selling. But I, I like the approach that I'm taking right now. And back to kind of, I didn't even know I said that, but, 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 you know, the honest, empowering, objective type of information-driven sales process and then take, take her out for a ride and, and you make the call. Yeah. Well, listen, I know we're about out of time. One of my favorite questions maybe we can end with is what is, what's one of the best pieces of advice you ever received? Yeah, there's a couple, but I think I could go back to Daniel and... Mm, Focus, focus, focus. That's probably the thing that's always stuck in my head because it's so easy to defocus. And then I have another favorite one, which is a little bit connected to kind of leadership and military leadership. And and, and it's, you know, attitude reflects leadership. Tell me just a little bit more about this idea, this idea that attitude reflects leadership. Well, it is what it, what it says, right? It's, if you if you if you're complaining about your organization in any way and your organization's performance 
or you know the way they act or anything it comes back to you as a leader that's it you leadership is responsibility for your organization's behavior that's it's as simple as that and you lead with that knowledge it always comes back to you because i have the executive power to fire hire change reorganize motivate educate improve their performance it's on me and that is the burden of leadership leadership is not a privilege it's the responsibility and you it sounds you know dramatic religious or what whatever but it helps you lead and it also helps you to be humble to the fact that it you know look at yourself first that's a great place to end i appreciate it everybody go to soundtrackyourbrand.com connect on linkedin thanks for thanks for all this time here and thanks for staying up till 11 o'clock at night stockholm time to do this and congratulations on all the success Thanks. And right back to you, Jess. Thanks for people like you doing more important stuff than selling background music. (laughs) Thanks again. Bye, everyone.